Corey with Restored Gospel Podcast. Mike and I are anxious to start another session with you, and we're going through uh, work you can find online called The Final Prophecy at RestoredGospel.com. And today we're going to talk about probably the most important thing for us to know, and and this is um, what did the symbol of the sacrifice mean? And who was this sacrifice for our salvation? So um, get your scriptures or get online and come join us at Restored Gospel Podcast and RestoredGospel.com. Welcome to Restored Gospel Podcast. Today we're going to be continuing with the final prophecy. We're going to talk about covenants, and this week uh, in a group text, Corey sent out a beautiful picture of a chiasm, and and I know in the last several months, he has really found a love and excitement for the Hebrew language and going through uh, different words and what they mean, but he's found all kinds of things in the Book of Mormon that people even have made fun of through the years and mocked Joseph Smith and said he just he had a silly language and he couldn't even speak correct grammar. And then going back through the Hebrew today and looking at different things, we see that all of these things that were so-called mistakes or bumbles on the part of Joseph were really translated into the original Hebrew as being absolutely perfect. Well, some of these are parallelisms and chiasms that we found that really bring out the meaning of the gospel. And Corey, you know what? Through the years... The restoration message has kind of been believe in the Book of Mormon and it's a divine book, right? Believe that Joseph was a prophet and that this book was really a divine book and it was an angel came and showed it, you know, it was in the ground and believe the story. And if you don't accept the Book of Mormon as the word of God, then, you know, you're not going to be able to be part of his, quote, true church and be saved and all of that. But the beautiful thing is the message contained in the book and if we could understand the message and use these parallelisms, these chiasms that really point to the focal points of the plain and precious truths of the gospel, those things have power to change our hearts. And when you have a group of people whose hearts have been changed, that's the greatest missionary tool in the world Amen. to other people. So tell me, tell me where you're at and you know one, one of the beautiful things, the beautiful truths you've discovered this week in the Book of Mormon and, and just take it from here, brother. Hey, thanks, Mike. You know, I really appreciate what you said just now. Um, for me, I mean, you know, having grown up in the church and believing the Book of Mormon is true, yeah, it's like you said, we held on to it with this like, okay, it's true, and now we're the we're the church, you know, and everything. But it's like there's this beautiful doctrinal message that comes from it that, for me, I think I'm just discovering in my own life. And, and in the recent weeks and months, even since we started this podcast, I think my belief in it has increased. If, if, if I can say belief in it, it's not really that, but you know what I mean? It's the truth is becoming evident times 10. Right. Know? And that's what the point is. And so God did us the favor of generations by to our generation, you know, think about this. He brought his pure word back and how, how many generations stumbled without that. And we, we think that the, the point was, well, gosh, in the 1800s, God had to restart his church. And it's like, you know, the book of Mormon doesn't talk about it that way. The book of Mormon talks about the fact that no, 
at a point in time, God would have mercy on the Gentiles and he would bring his pure word back to them. Mm -hmm. And so we've had this word, but I've, I've realized, at least for me anyhow, I've never really understood or studied it as far as trying to teach doctrine. It's like you said, we just held on to it like, oh, we've got another book, you know, and everything. And so we're, we're right because of this. Let's focus on what this book says. And so it's, to me, it's amazing. Um, we'll talk about a couple of these chiasms. So when we're in the final prophecy, and I want to, I want to lead up to the one you just said, um, we're in this foundation section that you can find online, click on the final prophecy and you can expand it if you're online or use the PDF. And um, be before we talk about this chiasm, it's where we ended up last time was talking about this symbol of men and women and the symbol of the sacrifice and, and this, or, or, or the symbol of marriage rather. And to understand that Satan's role in this opposition in all things um, was something that did not take God by surprise, that the opposition in all things is important. And this is one of the things that came out this week when I was looking at this scripture. Everyone in the church has heard there's an opposition in all things. But it's interesting. You can scripture search it and you can say, hey, there's a blank in all things and everyone knows that word's opposition. But the reason why there's an opposition in all things, that was something that to me was just a revelation. And before we go on to this next section, I just want to wrap this up from last time because this to me is the reason why there's an opposition in all things. You know, we, we accept the fact that there is, but that sounds like it's something that belongs in a physics book, you know, something like New yeah. Newton's laws, right? Um, you know, in that great scripture in the Book of Mormon, my son was getting ready for work today and I was like, you ready to face the day? And he's like, I guess. And I said, well, someday when you meet Adam in heaven, you can talk to him and say, why'd you have to, why'd you have to fall in the garden? And I had to go and make my living by the sweat of my brow. And I said, what's Adam going to tell you? And he said, Adam's going to say, I fell so men might be and men are that they might have joy. I said, that's right. And then you could thank him for all of the joy you're experiencing. And well, so that's the great. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great point. You know, this, uh, so this opposition in all things in second Nephi chapter one, verse 81 in the RLDS version, it, it's contained as a verse and it's unfortunate because when the book of Mormon actually went to the printer, I learned this just recently um, Joseph Smith didn't divide it up into verses and stuff. I mean, they were basically the books that mm -hmm. were first Nephi, second Nephi, and it was just written. The printer did 95% of the versification, if you will, of the Book of Mormon, just because it's like, well, we need to divide this up, you know, and the original Book of Mormons weren't, weren't divided up, but eventually they became, well, what I found is that the verses sometimes are more often split the Hebrew thoughts into separate sections. Sometimes even chapters break when the thought is continuing. The, the, the worst one, I think, is chapter 9 and 10 of the third book of Nephi. It's a continuous thought, and it's divided into chapters in the wrong mm -hmm. spot. But nevertheless, here's, here's an example. Second Nephi 1, verse 81 <laughs> says, For there not, must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. Well, Again, we, we take that and it's like, oh, yeah, well, there's something the Book of Mormon teaches, an opposition to all things. And then we start thinking about physics and gravity and all this stuff. But that point isn't physics and gravity. The point is what's in the next verse. And this is a thought that shouldn't have been broken, but it nevertheless is. So because it says, if not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, this is Lehi speaking to his son. 
So he says, there must needs be an opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass. That's the thought. The opposition in all things put a period in the end where there wasn't even supposed to be a period. He said, there must needs be an opposition in all things so that righteousness could come to pass. Otherwise, there wasn't going to be wickedness or holiness or good or bad or anything. It was just existence. Think about that. Just think about that for a minute. Without an opposition, righteousness couldn't be brought to pass. Right. right. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we just always be righteous? You know, and but because you because righteousness has to be then tied to the ability or the propensity or the balance of choosing. Choosing, it. and you can't choose righteousness unless. There's, There's a choice. <laughs> opposite, right? There has to be unrighteousness. Exactly. And yeah, that's that's right. what this all leads up to. It says, hey, there wouldn't have been death or life or corruption or happiness or misery. You know, these are just the next verses. Even words like sense or insensibility. He said everything would have been created for a thing of naught. There would have been no purpose in the creation. And see, this is all contained in this thought. This is why there's an opposition, so that righteousness can occur. You know, it's kind of like, you think about something silly like golf. Well, the ultimate in getting the golf in, in, in the game of golf is probably getting the hole in one. Now I'm not a golfer, but you know, everyone's probably heard of that, but you think about it. If everyone could get a hole in one, every time they hit the ball, no one would ever golf. Right. The, right. the, the, the challenge is this, the struggle, the opposition, you know, it's, it's the terrain and the sand pits and all these different, the wind and all these variables that make it almost impossible. But that's the intrigue of golfing, right? Is, is trying to do it against the challenges. And this is almost what God's saying is life is for, right? No, yeah. you know, we, we, we need to expect challenges. I mean, and, and that's the point. I listened to, uh, I, I can't remember which one it was cause I listened to so many this week, but one podcast, one teaching I listened to, the man was talking about, um, he was talking about the fact that we look at the uh, scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament scriptures, and why things are not clear. And Corey, I've said this myself in the past. Why couldn't we just have a book that said, do these things, these five things, and you'll have salvation and be with me in the kingdom. Uh, and it says that, but in a roundabout way, but in this instruction this week, the teacher said this, you can never have a book with enough commandments, with enough instructions to tell you in every situation what to do and what not to do. And he basically said, and there's no joy in that. But the way the Lord wrote his word and presented it to us was in a way that we had to pursue it. We had to pursue him. We have to dive into the word. We have to think about it. We have to use our intellect. We have to use the gifts that he's given us. And in doing that, we grow and we mature and we um, come to basically be changed in the inner man through that process. Whereas he basically said there would be no joy or righteousness if all you had to do was obey while well, do these things, you know, there's no changing of the heart. Right. There's no transformation of the man. There's no relationship. You know, if every day I woke up and just gave my son a list and said, do these five things and you'll get your allowance tonight. Yeah. And I had no other relationship with him. But, you know, when there's instruction and there's a personal relationship and it's like, why are we doing these things? And uh, that, that's, that's even a, a pale analogy. But 
That's what you're saying is, and this guy said the same thing, and, and I thought about that for a moment, and it's like because our interaction with the word is meant to transform us, the pursuit of finding truth is meant to transform us as much as anything. Uh, the guy said this week, Christians are not supposed to talk and seek out Christian things to talk about and only talk about Christian things. We're supposed to learn how to dialogue about all things from a Christian perspective. Mm. And that's the purpose of the word is to how do I go about interacting with people and becoming righteous in this world that's fallen and sinful? Um, You can't just have a list of yays and, you know, this, do this and don't do that. But rather, you're going to fight through this opposition and in so doing be transformed as you interact with the word and find out. Yeah. And, and, you know, you just take what you just said, Mike, that is one of the primary plain and precious truths that was restored to the Book of Mormon. You don't find this in the Bible. I'm sorry mm-hmm. to say anywhere, anything close to it. Even though, even though the <clears throat> Jews had a better concept of this and still have than we do, because they see God as Elohim and Adonai, you know, the God of justice and the God of mercy. They they see Him as one. That's what it means to them when God is one. He's He's both justice and mercy. That's that's the description of the opposition as far as God. But the way this whole world was put together, um, and and Lehi explains it in the most beautiful parallelisms here. You know, if you say there's no sin, there's no righteousness. If there's no righteousness, there's no happiness. If there's no happiness, there's no punishment or misery. He goes through all these things and lists why. Is that the one where he eventually gets to, and if there's none of this, there is no God? Exactly. That's all that chapter one of Second Nephi. (laughs) It reminds me of, in in college, I had to take philosophy, like up into the 400 levels, because part of criminal justice was a lot of uh, philosophy and everything. I don't know why, but I ended up really liking the classes, but that reminded me so much of these philosophers from early on that would just lay out like this A, the B, progress C. Of thought. Yes, yeah, and that's that is so ahead of its. Oh my gosh! How did a it stands up boy, to nothing? I mean, there's nothing that can stand up to that. Wow, I mean, so true. There, what else in the in the religious world? speaks this and 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 they claim you know oh joseph smith just plagiarized from the bible show me where this is in the bible that it says god created things to act and things to be acted upon and this is this is the point where he brings it out but he said but man could not act for himself save he should be enticed the one by the one or the other so he said so i've given it to you to mankind god says in all this opposition in all things to be able to act and not to be acted upon. You see, the animals of the world are acted upon. They are, they function as their, you know, the biological and DNA and everything that's part of their ancestry to, you know, my dog liked to chase squirrels, you know, all the right. time. She's always going to chase squirrels, right? Because that's what dogs do. And one time she caught a squirrel and had it in her mouth and she saw another squirrel and dropped it and got that one. <laughs> and so, but the point is, they're just they're they're being acted upon, right? Because that's what dogs and everything are. But he said, no, we we weren't designed to be acted upon. We were designed to act. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That we have His character that we can choose. And so it's like, how did a farm boy in New York come up with this? You know, I mean, it's like there's nothing in Scripture that comes close to this. And it's like this is what I'm saying. I'm not. I wasn't born understanding this. I'm just like realizing this this week. This is so. It's so foundational to 
creation and, and the struggle that we have. And so here it is. We were created to be able to then act and choose in the midst of all this. And then God says, okay, so this is what creation means. And and I, I enjoy now anymore looking at critics of the Book of Mormon, their comments, um, because I realize they, they come from a position of just wanting to sling mud and, and they never have read this with any intent of seeing what it says or trying to understand it. So they gloss over the truth, just looking for things to pick apart. And there's a place in the Book of Mormon where it quotes Eve as saying, hey, if we hadn't have fallen, we wouldn't have been able to know joy or something like this. And the, a naysayer was like, this is blasphemous to say it was good to fall and good to sin. You know, In other words, that, that's how it came out through the Book of Mormon. But what Eve isn't saying, no, it was good that we sinned, she... The point is, going back to this, she's saying, if we hadn't fallen, we would have never been able to know righteousness. And now God is showing us, no, this whole world of choosing, we can choose to be back with him, and we're going to know things beyond what we ever would have experienced in a neutral state. That's the point, is that we have to go through the opposition to be able to come back to him. Yeah, and... Has there ever been a time in history, certainly not in my life, not in my life, that I have seen the utter helplessness of man? We are seeing right now in society that there is so much fallacy and argument one way or the other, and truth is elusive, and we want to have solutions to problems, but to every solution, there's a there's an opposite saying, no, that's not going to work. We, we're in a pickle, man. Mm-hmm. And this is it's just becoming, right now, it's very evident where mankind ends up when righteousness is not involved. There is no hope. There is no answer right now politically, financially, um, scientifically for what is going on in the world uh, other than righteousness. And, and, and really, this is the point where all mankind gets to, right? When, when Eve fell, we, see, we now have this picture that we're living in. It's like, this is what happens when there's unrighteousness. And this is what happens when my way is not adhered to. I, I am the only way. I'm the only way for people to thrive and have all of their needs met. And there is just suffering outside of my way. Yeah. And now you are experiencing this. And when you find your way back into righteousness, it's this beautiful thing. Like now we know why it's beautiful because mm-hmm. we see what happens when it's not in place. Mm-hmm. You know, Satan uh, was in Enoch's vision. Uh, it said he had this great chain and he veiled the world in darkness. And, you know, these, these chains are the lies that he's convinced us are going to lead us to truth. And the whole world right now is veiled by these lies that they think will bring happiness and they bring misery. And it says, you know, he looks up to God and he laughs, <laughs> you know, for, for all of these lies that he's created. us, And, and we're seeing it all around us right now, Every, everything you're saying in our societies and, and the fact that, you know, People aren't seeking righteousness as the solution. They're just looking for politics or money or something to solve it. But the heart of man, until it changes, you know, that's you, you have to be born again. That's the whole point of this. Through this process, that's what Jesus meant. That's what the scriptures teach. It's what the Book of Mormon articulates so well is that in the midst of strife, if our heart doesn't change, we miss the point of life through all of this. You know, and even the reason that we're seeking solutions is the problem today, right? Why do we want to seek solutions? Why do we want, 
you know, COVID to be mastered because we, we, we fear we're dying. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants to die a, a miserable death. Why do we, why do we want, um, you know, equality and justice for every race, whatever that means, because, you know, those things being thrown out right now are, are the farthest thing from what actually needs to happen for people of all races and colors. It's why are we seeking these solutions? They're not for righteous solutions. No, no. They're so we can continue to go on and prosper and watch sports and partake of, you know, the sin of Babylon without being, you know, without Perverted. stumbling blocks in the way. Yeah. But right now society's mourning because we can't partake in our sins like we used to. <laughs> we can't go out and and um, you know, you know, make a living and and have our money so that we can spend things on ourselves, but there's there's no there's nobody wanting to solve things for righteousness sake. Right. It's right. just so we continue our sinful lives yeah. and don't yeah. interrupt our sinful yeah. lives with this pesky virus. You know, right, right, I need yeah. to get back to my sinful life. <laughs> and I really, want my that's stuff. Don't give me God. You're right. Yeah, I want my stuff back. I want my sinful lifestyle back. There's no, there's no righteousness at the end of this. Mm-hmm. And so the solutions, even if, even if it's a temporary reprieve in some way, shape, or form, it's not a. It's not to go back to a life of righteousness into Christ. Mm-hmm. It's to go back to our sinful lives. Mm-hmm. It is. And yeah. so it's all for naught. Well, the interesting thing that the Book of Mormon teaches that is that, you know, there's a time prophesied that if the Gentiles reject the gospel, and uh, it marks the time when it goes back to the house of Israel, that there's judgment. And he said, but there's still a chance to repent. But the interesting thing about the judgment, which is in the end of the ninth chapter of the third book of Nephi, is it the explanation for it? It says so that there can be an end to wickedness and evil and witchcraft and all these things. It mm-hmm. says so that righteousness can be there. And it's like, so in the end, God wins at this. And the prophecies and this final prophecy is trying to kind of point our minds towards these things to look forward to that, that God's end game is that righteousness sweeps the earth like a flood. And it will. It like will. a flood. Yeah. See, Picture that, that. Just hang your mind on exactly, that for a minute. Right? If you've ever seen if you've ever seen a tsunami when all of a sudden the wave just comes and it overwhelms the beach or the city or something like that, you know, that's what it means. It's gonna it's gonna be a flood. Righteousness. Yeah. That's so so see, everyone thinks not and not everyone, but um my my quest for this final prophecy, just to throw this out, was because everyone sort of looked at Genesis 9 in the inspired version, which is Enoch's account, which, by the way, we've found also existed in uh, documents from Ethiopia. Hey, you want to hear something interesting? So we, uh, the Bible answer, <laughs> the Bible project yeah. podcast this week was a question and answer session. I was very uh, appreciative of people across the world that were sending in questions to the, the Bible project. And and they were great questions, and it's because of the teaching of these young men out in Portland. And there were people have moved away from the thought, and they keep saying like, the scriptures we have were not this gold set of of writings that dropped into our lap. No, we've Aaron, got a gold set of writings yeah, yeah. that dropped in our lap, <laughs> right? That were dropped into our lap that that came straight from God to us. They said it goes through man, yeah. and they even admit like I was. This was a really hard concept at first, but I realized God included man in His process of bringing about his purposes and so they're inspired and they teach us but but they go through man and so people wrote in they said well what about the book of Enoch you know Enoch the book of Enoch's mentioned or Enoch's mentioned and and we know there's the book of Enoch now is this something we read or not and 
and they were talking about the canon of scripture and why we ended up with what we ended up with. And, and yes, there's other letters out there. And, and they said, I imagine it's like social media today. You know, something goes viral because it's really good. They said, I imagine some of these letters just kind of floated to the top. And they're like, hey, you church down the road, you need a copy of this letter. It's really good. And and so those were the ones that kind of got in there. But they didn't dismiss the other ones as being valid. But they said even, you know, the Apocrypha and different writings in the Catholics, there, that's actually still Orthodox Church, the uh, Ethiopia. Uh, it wasn't Ethiopian, but you could tell it was. It had the word Ethiopian, original Orthodox Church. They still have the Book of Enoch in their canon of scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we've we've touched on that before, but that that backs up different. Um, well, anyway, so yes, there's 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 different writings, um, but we were given this very this Book of Mormon, and this is what I was gonna break. They were talking about a specific scripture this week in Second Corinthians twelve, where Paul was talking about, you know, it's better for a man not to marry, or, uh, or but because there's fornication and, and bad things going on, you know, be married and be with your wife. And they're trying to discuss whether or not now was this Paul saying this as the word of God, or was he answering a question from the crowd? Because one version of the Bible has these in quotes, like mm-hmm. someone had said that to him, and then he's saying, you say this, and I'm responding to you. And as this dialogue's going on, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is good. And even, you know, we've got the inspired version, whatever people think, but we've got the Book of Mormon that came forth in the last days to bring back plain and precious truths. So even if there's still debate in the Bible on different things, we have a very clear message on almost everything on what we need to do to be saved and transformed. And you found one of those clear messages this week in in a beautiful chiasm. Yeah, 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 it's there. And, you know, so this whole idea of this flood of righteousness, you know, comes from the book of Genesis in the inspired version. We we get this included, um, you know, Joseph Smith had a revelation and, and saw this vision of Enoch kind of explained to him. But the point that it makes is that, you know, it says, when men keep all my commandments, Zion will come to the earth. And so we've always looked at this as like, oh, well, we just have to figure out how to keep all the commandments and then we'll have Zion. But it's like, I think it wasn't putting that as this condition, like, okay, if you guys could just get your act together, then we'll have Zion. The the point was that it was describing a condition in the future when because of this flood of righteousness that is going to go out, the earth is going to be a different place because the hearts of people are going to change. And that's when it's all predicted through the Book of Mormon, when the gospel goes out back to the remnant of the people and then to Israel, and then the kings are going to shut their mouths when they see Israel respond to this word, and the world is going to become a different place. Very polarized, two churches, but you're either on board with Jesus or you're not, and that's all. And then in the end, even though God's people are fewer in number, supposedly, in that condition in the future, the good people win. I mean, as far as, I don't mean the good people, Righteousness overwhelms evil. And this is the condition that the future is describing through the Book of Mormon that then Zion comes to, right? When 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 now we've because Jesus is in our midst, he's he's organizing the work and it's going out. But yeah, a flood, a flood of righteousness is gonna go out. And so it starts with this plain and precious book that we've been given, which, you know, I, I love reading the Bible. I mean, that's where the the stories unfold of of man's plight and misery and and Israel's fornication, if you will, and all these other uh, 
problems of man, but it all gets resolved in the end. God brings it together, and that's what's so exciting about all this, that despite Satan's lies and the unrighteousness he's overwhelmed the earth with, that God still wins, you know. And it's and it's more than just, hey, if, if, if our congregation could just all, you know, do this, then we'll have Zion. It's like, that's not what the Scriptures say. It's a bigger, more beautiful story than that you know, of prophecies and things to come. So, well, we were in this final prophecy, and I am um, I know we've talked about certain things, you know, Satan and the lies and everything. We were talking about that last time. No, no point in really kind of going over that. But this, the, the next section of this, to lead up to this chiasm, it's kind of together the symbol of the sacrifice and who the sacrifice is. You know, Adam learns that, he had to offer a sacrifice to teach him a lesson that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And even Jews today know this, you know, where our, our culture never grew up seeing sacrifices of animals and everything. And some people thought the animals were the thing that brought the healing, the forgiveness and all that. And that's what God wanted because he was this vengeful, wrathful God who needed us to kill things to make him happy. It wasn't the point at all. And God says, hey, I'm full of your sacrifices. He said, you don't get the point. The point was that you needed a two-by-four to teach you, <laughs> you know, and here it is. You're going you're gonna to do these things symbolically to teach this great point that Jesus was and is the sacrifice, that all of these laws of Moses were to point us towards understanding that that God was going to step out of the realm of eternity into time and take on flesh. And this is what this chiasm is so beautiful that explains better than my words. Isn't that, you know, isn't it crazy? Like when we have our kids and they're very young uh, and they step out of bounds, like, you know, like when Weston's reaching for the hot stove, that there's one action for the mother, right? Mm -hmm. Because of where he's at in his life. And it's like, it's either like, no, and you smack the top of their hand or, you yell at them and they cry or go sit in your chair and time out and don't move and they cry and the punishment is harsh and it's quick and it's, and it's you know, it seems like it's the end of the world but for them. But it's all for their good. But it's all for their good. <laughs> yeah. but, but there comes a point, and I'm not even trying to be silly, there comes a point where your children get to a point where it's like, me, like if I was to smack Weston's hand now at 16, number one, he could... He could turn me over his knee now. The guy's just, (laughs) (laughs) he's bigger than me. But um, that's no longer going to work, right? And and, and it's at a point where you're like, hey, this is why, and you start to talk about things in a more mature way. Do you want this end result to end up happening Mm, to you? Do you see why I'm telling you to do this? Yes, I understand. And that's, it's like, Uh, that's how God in the progression of humans, it seems like as he's trying to present who he is to us as a race through time. At first, like you said, it's a two by four, boom, boom. No, this is what you do. Adam, why are you, why are you doing this? I don't know other than you told me to do it. Right. Yeah, That was in the very beginning of Genesis. But as our capacity to understand increases, God can then reason with us because we have the intellect to reason and understand reason yeah. versus just a reaction. Yeah, that's very. And good. we always have to remember that we're looking back through thousands of years of recorded interaction with our Creator to human beings uh, to get our knowledge where we're at now. But those human beings didn't have that. We watched Band of Brothers last night again. Oh my gosh, one of the best films ever made, in my opinion. But 
we were at the very end where there where these soldiers who have just two years the guys two years since I've been home and they're all angry what are we doing this for and they're walking through the woods and all of a sudden they come to this place they've never seen this before we know all about them from history they've never seen it and they they're like what is this I don't know and here's all of these just emaciated shaved head people hanging in rigs, Jews in a concentration camp, and they're seeing it for the first time. Mm. And these men start to weep, and they realize that for two years, their sacrifice they were making, oh, my gosh, this is the extent of evil. Mm. This is what's going on. Mm. Wow. But they didn't have the history books to tell them about concentration camps. Wow. They're walking into it for the, first, for the first time. time right. Completely different perspective. Wow. So wow. as we read back on the scriptures, we want to th- sometimes think like, well, why did they not get it? What? What? Why are people so dense? Well, so, well, look, man, you've got, you've got tons more information today. Good point. Those yeah, people did not. The- they're understanding God for the first time, and we're learning about God through their mistakes, through their interactions, it, through their teaching. Exactly, exactly. And you know that's borne out in so many levels, Mike. This whole um, law of Moses was like the two by four. It's like, okay, this is what you're going to do. You, you, you know, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. There was like 365 thou shalt do yeah. nots and 238 thou shalt do's. All these things. But when Jesus comes and Moses said, hey, when this guy comes, you're going to do everything that he says. Jesus says, it was written in the law, thou shalt do such and such. And he would quote the law of Moses. But he says, but I say unto you to do this. You know, it's like go with your neighbor a mile. Well, I say go with him two miles. You know, um, he always took the law and made it higher because, like you said, it was like the young child who needed the spanking first versus the older child who can reason. And so everything that he's, he pointed towards was not just, hey, it's adultery if it's physically an act between a man and a woman, but he said it's adultery if you lust in your heart, you know, because he took it to the higher levels. And so this law of Moses was given as a... Uh, simply as a type and shadow to point towards the sacrifice. And the Book of Mormon explains so beautifully that Jesus was the ultimate point of all of these sacrifices that they had to do through the Old Testament. And so in the end, you know, the Jews, even today, it's prophesied that when they read Moses or the old law, you know, a veil is over their heart because they don't see what it pointed towards. But when they come to Christ, the prophecy is that that veil's removed, and then they see what all the point of this was. And they'll understand it so much better to explain it to us, who we're kind of on the outside dabbling with, you know, oh, I see this little chiasm here, this parallelism or this type and shadow. It's like, no, they're going to get it times 100 because they lived it. It was part of their, it wasn't part of their culture. It was their culture. You know, it's everything about them. Yeah. And they're going to understand what all these symbols stood for. And that's going to make them, as, as Zechariah says, they're going to look upon him who was pierced and weep. And they're going to just weep because of the fact that, oh my gosh, we had all this and we didn't see what it pointed towards. So, so everything is pointing towards the fact that we, that a payment had to be made for our eternal sin by one who was, was eternal and infinite. And so the next section is this sacrifice of the eternal father. Here's, here's where I want to go to this chiasm because you've, you've opened this up nicely, Mike, for us to talk about. Um, one of the things that's going on right now today in the world is, um, anyone out there could do this listening. If you're at a computer on the internet, search, you know, Isaiah 53 and on YouTube, for instance, and you might throw the world, the word Jews or Israel in there, Israel, Isaiah 53. What you're going to find 
are countless videos of people in Israel who are interviewing Jews and asking them about Isaiah 53. Did you know this scripture points towards Jesus? And some of them had never heard it. Some of it, some of the old Jewish Bibles didn't even have Isaiah 53 in there because the rabbis had a hard time explaining because they didn't want to say it pointed towards Jesus, right? So it's out there. So why do I bring this up? Well, in the Book of Mormon, what we find is that when Abinadi is preaching to King Noah, he is using the scriptures from Isaiah 53 to to teach how these symbols that they were living under the Mosaic law, even in America, were going to point towards Jesus. And the people didn't and the people didn't get it. And here he's preaching to a hard-hearted person and his his culture of of priests and their, you know, kind of gluttonous lives, Alma being one of them. Um, when when he's among them, what his purpose is is to teach what it meant that God would and the Son were were one. And so where I want to go with this is uh, you can turn in your scriptures. Uh, this is actually isn't in the final prophecy edition that you have online. I'm going to put this in here because to me it's 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 pretty uh, it's pretty obvious and uh, even profound in a sense. But um, so Isaiah uh, Mosiah, the book of Mosiah, chapter eight, and starting at verse twenty eight. I'm just going to read this first, and it sounds a little bit like uh, it's kind of wordy, whatever, but. But what I want to point out is is two things about this from the Hebrew. But let me just read that, like five verses. Now, Abinadi said to them, now, now Abinadi has just finished reading from Isaiah 53, what we call Isaiah 53, and this is the scripture. Uh, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, he put him to grief. Uh, he would be an offering for sin. He'll see the travail of his soul and, and be satisfied, and and uh, all he will bear our iniquities. You know, we've heard these words before. Well, they all come from the prophecies of of Isaiah. So when Abinadi finishes reading these things, um, Abinadi says, and this is verse twenty eight, I would that ye should understand that God Himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son, the Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son, they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. And thus the flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation and yieldeth not to temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. Now, now that's the passage. It's Mosiah 8, verse 28 through 32. But So what sometimes happens if you're scripture searching, um, you'll find repeated words, and, and, and that's sometimes a clue, especially in the Book of Mormon, to uh, one of two things. Uh, the... The hallmark of Hebrew writing in the ancient days was parallelisms. And now we already talked about it earlier in the in the show today about the parallels of the opposition in all things. But a parallelism was, you know, we call it Hebrew poetry, but it wasn't for the point of making rhyming words and, and cute-sounding uh, poems. The, the 
point of parallelism was that the ideas rhyme and that the ideas explain each other, sometimes by by comparing things or sometimes by contrasting things. And so what's interesting is these five verses show tremendous parallels. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to point a couple of them out. But they're also perfectly folded into a beautiful chiasm. Now, the chiasm is when, in, in Hebrew writing, you take ideas and you present them in order, like A, B, C, D, and then you reverse the order, D, C, B, A, and in the middle you make your great point, right? So that's a chiasm. So the parallelism is ideas that, that are parallel to teach. The chiasm is this re- reversing of ideas. And so in this scripture, I want to show you the outsides of this. So if you see in verse 5, uh, 28, looking there, it says, I want you to understand that God would come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. Now, come down and shall redeem his people. Now, notice in, in the end of the passage, verse 32, it says, God would suffer temptation, yield not, but he would suffer himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. So you see there's a comparison of he's coming to redeem his people in verse 28, and in the end, verse 32, he's going to be disowned by his own people. You know, here's here's the great uh, responsibility. That, no, let me put it this way. Here's the great definition of grace right here. God had nothing but love in his heart for us. I'm going to come down and redeem you. And we had nothing but contempt for God. We're going to mock you, disown you, scourge you, cast you out, and crucify you, right? So so here's here's the ends of the chiasm. It's what he's doing for his people and what his people do for him, okay? So so that's that's the that's the first point, but we notice the parallel, his love for us and our hate for him, right? That's that's what our response was. His response to us, let me put it that way, was to come down and redeem himself or redeem us. And our response was to crucify him. So, so then, so that's the ends of, of what he does for us and, and what we did to him. But notice these parallels. Verse 29, because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. Now, that in itself is a, what the Hebrews call kind of an A B, where you have a point and then you have the, the response. So it's the, the flesh is parallel to the Son. Because he dwells in the flesh, he will be called the Son of God. Now notice in this whole passage, the flesh is parallel to the Son, and and God the Father is parallel to the Spirit. I'm, I'm gonna. It's easier to see this in print. In fact, Mike, I'll give you something you can include on the show notes for this for people to see. Sure, that'd be great. Because... Because he dwells in the flesh, he's the son of God. Having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father of the Son, so the the flesh is subject to God's will, God's point, being the Father and the Son. The Father, notice in verse 30, because he was conceived by the power of God. So the Father part of Jesus, and this is all pointing towards who the sacrifice is. The Father, he was the God of heaven, because he had the power of God, and he was conceived by God's power. And he was the son because he took on flesh. So it's combining the spiritual power of God with the flesh of the earth. 
thus becoming the Father and the Son. So, so the flesh is compared to the Son, the Spirit is compared to the Father, and the two became joined in one. And, and then here's the point. It says, and thus becoming the Father and the Son. This is verse 30. Now, I want to jump ahead to verse 32. I want to skip over 31. And, and notice this is the inverse of that, uh, this flesh becoming subject to the will of the Father. Notice verse 32 says, and thus the flesh becomes subject to the Spirit. So it's comparing the will of the flesh to the will of the Spirit. God's will entered into a fleshly body, God's spirit, and God's purpose overcame the purpose of the flesh. The purpose of the flesh is to, be, to, to draw us away from God. Our will is to, um, to leave God's ideas, to abandon him, to choose unrighteousness. That's the point of the opposition in all things. The spirit's uh, desire is to, to bring us to God, right? The flesh wants us to, to come away from God. But in this opposition, God says, my spirit entering a human body became one, God's, God's power in the flesh, and God's will overcame the flesh, which is what ultimately our whole life's purpose is. And so when we, when we look at the center of this, it's verse 31. Uh, we've got on the outsides, we've got verse uh, 28 and, and 32, which is what God did. He came down and what we responded to. Verse 29, dwelling in the flesh, he'll be called the Son of God. Uh, verse 32, it says, uh, the flesh became subject to the Spirit, or here's the parallel, the Son to the Father, right? So he's saying that the flesh becoming to the Spirit is parallel to the Son to the Father, or the fleshly um, presence of God versus the spiritual presence of God. And he says, these are one God. And he suffered temptation, but he didn't yield to temptation Yeah. in the end. And so what's the center of all this? Now, I, I just want to come back to the middle. It's this verse 31. And this, to me, might be the ultimate, uh, even though it's a little, I think this one's a little harder to follow because we don't always think of the flesh and the spirit and the son and the father and all these things, but the parallels that the scripture is trying to point out point to everything towards this. And this is the center of it. And they, the flesh, the spirit, the son, the father, they are one God, the very eternal father of heaven and of earth. You know, that's the center of it. That So this, this grace that we talk about was his will to come down and save us, to pay the ultimate price. This role he had to take on was to leave his, his eternal realm and the spiritual power and take on the same body that we had that was subject to wanting to sin. And yet he did the thing that none of us could do. He lived in this body and never yielded to temptation, right? The, the, that's the parallel is that all of flesh yields to temptation because we're weak. But yes. yet God's power in the fleshly body overcame the temptation. And that was requisite for this final sacrifice to have any meaning. If God had come down and sinned and then we crucified him anyhow, guess what? Shows over anyhow, because he had to do what we couldn't do. He had to prove that he could live in this body of flesh and not yield to sin the way we all have. And through that being eternal and infinite, 
he was able to pay, he was able to die for us the death that we deserved. And I'm just seeing here in this Book of Mormon, because this was always a disconnect for me. So this says, Corey, that uh, as you read in verse 32, Mosiah 8, 32, it says, they were one God. He suffers temptation. Hebrews talks about in the Bible that, um, you know, that God took on flesh and, and so that he would know how to succor his people. Mm-hmm. Like he, yep. he suffered temptation, uh, but he yielded not to the temptation, but suffered himself to be mocked, to be scourged, to be cast out, to be disowned by his people. And through all of that thing, through all of that process, he didn't yield to temptation and after he'd worked mighty miracles among the children, he was led, even as Isaiah prophesied, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He didn't resist. He didn't resist. He was led and crucified and slain. And here it is, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. We saw that in the garden when he was praying, Lord, if, if any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not the will of the flesh, but the will of the Father, the Spirit be done. But here it is. And thus, I never realized how powerful verse 35 is because this is the only way that I get the disconnect to then become connected as to how, what does this mean for me? And thus, God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men. Now, I don't think we can probably understand that in our heart or in our mind, but if there's something you want to exercise faith in and pray to the Lord, help me understand this, this is it, that God broke the bands of death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men. And that is why Jesus is our savior and he's mighty to save. And by somehow going through this process, he has then been able to bring us into the presence of God. But, but our battle is not, I can't walk into the presence of God with my evil fleshly carnal spirit. The only way this makes sense is if I'm infused with the spirit of Christ Christ's spirit has to be within me because Christ's spirit was the one that overcame and bowed down, you know, to, to the, he bowed down to, he broke the bands of death. He yielded not, he yielded not, but he totally obeyed and gave in to the father. So if that spirit's in me, if, if I'm saying Christ save me with all of my heart, I want to yield to you, then he can bring me into the kingdom as well. Exactly. But that process is not, the process can become cliche, right? Believe in Christ and be saved. Well, that's absolutely 100% truth. (laughs) Right. But when you break that down, what does that look like? Oh, my goodness. It's that the heart has to (laughs) yield its desire to sin and desire the things of God. And that doesn't happen in a moment. That doesn't happen when you're surrounded in a a sinful world that Mm -hmm. believe in Christ and be saved. No, because... That word belief means so many things. Exactly. It, exactly. It's it's the desire to do God's will regardless of your circumstance. You know, no matter if someone's betraying you or not, you know, you just, that's the temptation, right? And that, yeah, yeah. You and know, we, so the, the, what, there's a beautiful 
on every level, this is just beautiful, and it's a, it's amazing doctrine. I mean, doctrine isn't even the right word. It's it's just truth that that couldn't have been articulated by by a person who wasn't inspired. And and these words come from you know a few thousand years ago when again these people in this culture were hearing it for the first time too. It's like oh yeah, he's quoting from Isaiah fifty three. Well. <laughs> None of these people knew this stuff, right? right? And it's explained and articulated so well. So this intercession, what's when when God takes on flesh and dies in the hands of His own creation, there was a symbol in every year in the sacrifice in Israel when the sacrifice was offered, and the high priest was the only one who could do this. He would gather the blood of this sacrifice off of the altar. And the altar was outside of the temple, and he alone had to carry this blood in the vessel. And he had to wear certain clothes and everything, these white linens. You know, it's interesting, Jesus, it's not, I mean, there's a reason for it, why he was wrapped in linen, same thing. This priest symbolized Jesus, what Jesus would do. Jesus carried his own blood back to to heaven, if you will, in a symbolic sense that says, no, this blood represents that I overcame the will of the flesh, I persevered and I accomplished the 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 purpose that had to be accomplished for humanity not to be cast out. And when that blood by the high priest was sprinkled on the mercy seat, it it was the final act of signing the deal of saying, "This is complete. You know, it is finished." The the what happened had to happen was the blood of the perfect sacrifice had to be sacrificed for us. And he carried his own blood, if you will, back to heaven and says, it is finished. And and now I can advocate for them and be and make intercession for them. That's how the Jesus then broke the bands of death, taking upon himself our iniquity and transgression, redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. You know, and and, it, and it's finished there. I just, oh my gosh, I um I look at these things and realize why why were why haven't we been teaching this you know and 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 I'm excited that it's like yeah we talk about it but we think somehow blood and grace and all these things oh those are for evangelicals no my gosh this no. is this is this is the the word of God and when we talk about Corey when we talk about faith a lot and belief faith and belief faith and belief there has to be an object that that faith and belief is fixed on. And I believe without a doubt that that object is exactly what we're talking about today. What we need to be faithful and exercise faith in is the fact that God took on flesh, that he broke the bands of death, that he was that he yielded to the Spirit. And, and the blood of Christ, as, as the Book of Mormon says, it's by grace we're saved after all we can do. Um, that's what we exercise faith in. And I just I just think of the thousands of hours of, of preaching and classes and things where we miss the mark. And I don't have all the answers, but it's like, it, man, if we could just focus in on the real message that's going to save us and learn how to exercise faith and belief in that, I see a group of people growing in their love for the Lord and being transformed as they realize that their salvation is secure, that they have a great, yes. beautiful um, home, a great, beautiful existence awaiting them right around the corner. And, man, we have got to catch that vision 
before we go through the trials that lie ahead. We have got to find that vision that just pulls us through and is like, no matter what happens today, I know that, man, I am so close to having this beautiful existence. But that existence isn't beautiful when you're fearful of being damned to hell or cast off in some star glory far away from the presence of God. There's not a lot of hope there. And so we have to exercise faith on the real message in the Book of Mormon. And you're bringing out a very clear message today. Well, I appreciate our time together, Mike. We've probably uh, concluded this part of it. But, you know, um, we're going to continue on, and uh, we've got a lot more to go through here to talk about uh, who this God is and what he did for us uh, and his amazing love for us. Yeah, I had a, I had an exciting uh, little thought that on that on that scripture that's so often misinterpreted by the evangelicals to bash the Book of Mormon, you know, say by grace, after all we can do. But maybe we can... Maybe we can touch on that quickly next time. Oh, we better. Yeah, sounds good. All righty, guys. Hey, just keep walking each other home, right? Till next time, God bless.